HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If your food media diet is fueled by HRN, become a monthly donor today. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Good afternoon. It's Monday, and that means it's time for What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we are going to be speaking with um, Emily Joyce, a fourth year PhD student in the Department of Earth, Environmental and Planetary Sciences, uh, studying the reactive nitrogen cycle and the impacts that it has on coastal areas in the open ocean at Brown University. Uh, And with her is Professor Meredith Hastings, Deputy Director of the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society, as well as Professor of Environment and Society and Earth, Environmental and Planetary Sciences. So if that doesn't just make me just want to curl up in total (laughs) shame that I have not accomplished anything like that in my lifetime... Uh, you know, good job, well done, young Meredith. <laughs> anyway, you guys, welcome back uh, to your round two interview um, for listeners. Um, actually, Meredith and Emily were both my guests on my other radio iteration, which is a very local show here in Rhode Island. Um, and I was moved to reach out to Emily uh, because of an article that I read in a local publication here in Rhode Island called Eco RI News. And in that, uh, in the publication, there was an article uh, that referenced uh, two papers that Meredith Hastings, the professor, has kind of overseen uh, some of the research on. Emily, I think, has participated in writing both of them. The first of those papers is called Highly Concentrated Atmospheric Inorganic Nitrogen Deposition in in an Herbal Coastal Region in the U.S. And in fact, that region turns out to be the upper uh, Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island. Um, And then the second uh, iteration or the second paper that caught my interest in this article is called Sources of Ammonium in Seasonal Wet Deposition at a Coastal New England City that being Providence. Um, but for our purposes, we are going to um, kind of pull the lens out a little farther uh, to talk about kind of what this means on a national and international level, because it is um, something that really does affect the air and water quality for all of us around the world. Um, so let's start. Um, Emily, you and your team Uh, studied the water quality in Upper Narragansett Bay for both of these studies. What exactly were you looking for when you decided to do these studies? 
Thank you so much for the big introduction. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Long titles. Um, yeah, thank you. So in Rhode Island, uh, we have Narragansett Bay, which spans the whole state of Rhode Island. And so um, this is like one of, I think it's the largest estuary in New England. And so, oh, yeah, no um, doubt about that. Yeah, yep. so it's a huge water body. And what's interesting about it being in Providence is that it's also an urban area. So the um, Narragansett Bay as a whole has suffered from water quality historically for many years. Um, but there's been a lot of regulations put in place, such as um, a reduction of nutrients coming in from different sources. So we focus on nitrogen in our group. Mm-hmm. And so a big reduction that's been put in place for Narragansett Bay is there's been a 60% reduction in wastewater treatment nitrogen coming in. Right. So that's so been in other huge. words, stormwater, uh, they've, been, they've managed to figure out a way to treat wastewater better or and or manage stormwater runoff better. Are those, is that fair to yes, say? Yes, both. Yes. Okay. Yeah, very fair. Yeah, so that's been a 60% reduction. And so the bay has improved tremendously from those reductions. Right. Um, so we're seeing like seagrasses come back in different locations in the upper bay for the first time in 30 years and mm. uh, beaches open, fish being able to be harvested further north. So that is... Great, but there's still days of poor water quality. And what was interesting is that there's recent work coming out of um, the University of Rhode Island that says that, or that showed that um, water quality, poor water quality events tend to occur after large precipitation events. Which we see more and more of as the climate shifts. Yes, exactly. uh, Warms, yes. Exactly. So that was really interesting to us to think about like what would be in the rain that could be causing this. And so to think about that, there's a lot of um, monitoring that's going on across the country. So there's a program called the National Atmospheric Deposition Program. They monitor precipitation weekly across the country. All, uh-huh. all states except for Rhode Island, I believe. There's oh, no, there, there isn't a site in Rhode Island. we always have to be a little bit different here in the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Exactly. Can't do yeah. what everybody else does. <laughs> yeah. But all those, um, or the majority of these monitoring sites are tend to be in rural areas because they want to um, get right. the well-mixed background. So they don't want to be biased next to like a highway, for instance. And then they're really just capturing what's in the rain from highway emissions. So um, they're all in rural areas. So to think about the rain for an urban area like Providence, it's not so helpful. So we were really interested in um, looking at the rain in Providence and urban coastal environment, especially because those regulations that I said, um, there's been nothing done for the nitrogen that's gone in from the atmosphere for the last 30 years. Or it, by nothing done, I mean it hasn't been monitored Right. So um, we continue to change the values of nitrogen going in from different sources like wastewater, as I keep saying, but we have the same exact value that we're saying is going in um, to the bay from the atmosphere for the last 30 years. And of course, that is not by, by any stretch an accurate measurement. Yeah. So as an atmospheric group, we know that's not uh, accurate. In some ways, it's a like there's been improvements like from the Clean Air Act. So it's... An, not even that we just were trying to be negative with like, it's so much worse, um, but it's definitely different than it was 30 years ago. Interesting. So w- were you surprised by the results uh, that you discovered 
Um, well, what exactly were you looking for? Like, where was the nitrogen coming from? Or were you looking for other types of uh, atmospheric pollution that would be precipitated into the water and onto the land by through rainfall? Yeah, let's let's start with what yeah. you were looking for. And then whether or not you were surprised by what you found. Yeah. So the first thing we were just wondering is just how much nitrogen is in the rain and in what mm-hmm. forms. So mm-hmm. we have uh, nitrogen that comes in from the atmosphere is there's organic nitrogen and then there's inorganic nitrogen. So we're really interested in the inorganic components because those are like nitrate and ammonium. Um, and those are what you'd find in fertilizer. So just like right. you fertilize your lawn, um, if you fertilize the water, it's going to cause the um, phytoplankton in the water, the biology to take that nitrogen up and it's going to change what's going on in the water. And that's so, what causes eutrophication or what we now know is the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, for example, is a primary exactly. example of that phenomenon, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So um, so we were wondering just how much that has changed. And the reason also that we were interested in those two nutrients is that's what's in our policy right now for the Bay is uh, the numbers that they're using are from the those uh, organic nitrogen, nitrate and ammonium from 30 years ago. Uh-huh. And so um, in doing that, we found we were surprised to see that the um, concentration of ammonium has gone up tremendously. So it's gone up six times. Yikes. So, um, yeah. So nitrate has actually gone down, which is great. So that's gone down because of different regulations like the Clean Air Act, which um, regulates nitrogen oxide emissions, which okay. leads to nitrate deposition. So um, so that is good. And, th- and we're seeing that across the whole country. It's not something that's unique about Providence. Right. So nitrate has gone down. Um, and we saw that in our precipitation here. So that is well representative. But um, ammonium, we weren't expecting it to be so high. And that's really important because uh, ammonium is actually the most biologically available form of nitrogen. So that uh-huh. means that um, if the species have their choice of ammonium or nitrate, they're going to take ammonium up first because they it requires less energy to use that um, uh-huh. nitrogen. So, so in fact, it excel it will accelerate, say, the development of you know phytoplankton or. Uh, you know, now would this be implicated in what they call cyanobacteria or blue-green algae, which is toxic? Would this also be implicated in that, in in those blooms that we see, say, for example, in Lake Erie every year has a big bloom of of what they call blue-green algae, which I I think is the scientific name is cyanobacteria. Yeah, yeah, that is what it's called. Yeah. Is that, so when you see big blooms of that, is that because there's a lot of ammonia, because it's so readily taken up by these organisms, that, that's, that the ammonium is actually contributing more than one would expect to those um, kinds of phenomena? It can. Um, mm-hmm. They're nitrogen fixers. So it doesn't have to be, but yeah, it can be. So what are the, just, just to be clear, what are the primary sources for the nitrogen and ammonia deposits you identified? So one of the interesting things about Emily's study was that um, we definitely see. This is Meredith speaking. Yeah, hi, this is Meredith. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the interesting things about Emily's study was that we really see this rural to urban gradient. So we see much higher concentrations in the urban rain than we do in these, um, you know, stations that are these monitoring stations that are located in more well mixed background areas. Uh-huh. And so um, 
And so that implicates that, you know, there, it's likely that there are some local sources also contributing um, okay. because otherwise, why wouldn't it just represent the background that, you know, everybody is seeing in the in the region, right? Like, right. for example, in Connecticut and Massachusetts, et cetera. And so, part of the sources for this, you know, let's be clear, is is, is from um, fossil fuel, from burning gas in car, in transportation, um, presumably fuel oil in your heating, in your furnace, <clears throat> things like that. Yeah, so we usually think of that as definitely being an important source of nitrogen oxides, which leads to nitrate deposition. Okay. For ammonia, um, there are industrial sources. Um, you know, fossil fuel combustion alone isn't usually an ammonia source unless it ha- like there's nitrogen contained in the fuels. Oh. But what's happening now with catalytic converters is that in order to make them, you know, just as efficient or more efficient and to burn oil in your engine, right, to, to keep your car going efficiently, um, is uh, but also to reduce emissions based on the Clean Air Act is they've modified catalytic converters to try to reduce nitrogen oxide emissions. Um, and so what happens usually for NOx is that you basically heat up the air and you split N2 and O2, and then they uh-huh. recombine, they recombine and form. So you split nitrogen and oxygen, they recombine and form um, NO. But in the case of these new catalytic converters, they're actually over-reducing um, the nitrogen, so you get ammonia emissions instead of NOx emissions, or you know you get more ammonia emissions um, relative to NOx emissions than you used to. So vehicles are becoming a more and more important source of ammonia, um, and that's true across the country. So we're seeing um, ammonia increase, but we also still have a lot of questions about you know what's happening in these urban areas because we usually think of agriculture as being the primary source of ammonia and ammonia. Yes. Um, but now we're seeing ammonia and ammonium in urban areas in high concentration. So there's clearly urban sources of ammonia as well. And and we have diagnosed that vehicles are an important source. Um, and we've worked on a study actually in Providence as well that we see that vehicles are an important source seasonally. Um, but it's interesting to think about, especially in urban areas, the combination of if you are you know, downwind of an ag- agricultural region, plus you have local sources, then, you know, ammonia is not just a problem for agricultural reason- regions. It's actually becoming a problem for urban regions as well. Right, right. We're, well, we're going to dig into that because um, now that we've sort of identified where the various, uh, these various components come from, I, I want to get to what role agriculture does play in the findings that you had. And and to be even more specific than that, um, I'm, I hope I'm not being too simplistic, but I'm going to assume that, for example, uh, concentrated animal feeding operations, also known as CAFOs, where you have gigantic either mounds of, you know, litter from chicken houses or uh, manure lagoons uh, mm-hmm. from hog houses. Uh, I would, just, I mean, I know that they're giving off ammonia. Um, would that be part of the ammonium or is that only caused by nitrogen and sort of the application of fertilizers and so forth? No, no, that doesn't cause so anything that anywhere, any way that you can volatilize ammonia, it will convert to ammonium readily. Okay. Thank so the you. lifetime of ammonia is actually pretty, like, relatively short. So yeah, in any, so yeah, the application of fertilizer, you lose some of the ammonium that in you know into the gas phase, which is ammonia. Um, right. And then, and that's the same for fertilizer. That's the same for manure. You know, any um, you know any source of, of high ammonium is going to probably volatilize into ammonia into the atmosphere. Um, right. And then it can be transported and then gets converted back to ammonium. And in our case, with this study, we were looking at rainwater. So we're looking at everything that gets, you know, washed out of the air. Right. So talk a little bit about how you were able to identify, because I thought this was fascinating, Mm -hmm. how you were able to identify 
agricultural culprits when you were studying the movement of these gases across the country? Like, how can you tell whether it's from a car or from a cow? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, it's an excellent, excellent question. And so, so there's a couple of answers to that. One is that we, so what we're measuring right, is a particular concentration in rain um, on a particular day in Rhode Island. Um, but then we're combining that with a couple of other tools to help us understand where that concentration comes from. So one um, is looking at transport. So we can actually, um, based on meter, meteorological data, um, so wherever there's weather stations, you can actually back calculate um, where the air came from. So basically, okay, I knew that I know there's a, you know, a storm this afternoon. Where yep. did that air come from before it reached here? And we will back calculate that for several days based on the lifetime of these gases so that we can say, okay, well, you know, the gases and particles um, that are being transported in and then washed out with the rain, you know, where could they have come from? So we know, for example, um, that the, you know, transport in one case, you know, is, you know, from the Midwest of the United States or Midwest Canada, and that that was, you know, where these storms were coming from. So we know that that air has transported. The other tool that we've been using in my group, um, and most of my um, research is dedicated to using um, isotopic tracers. Okay. So these are stable isotopes. Um, they're the same element. So in our case, we're looking at nitrogen. So it's the same element with slightly different masses, and it's naturally occurring. And when I say stable, it's because it's not radioactive. Um, so there's Woo-hoo. there's both what we call nitrogen. <laughs> there's both nitrogen fourteen and nitrogen. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no nuclear science here. But um, <laughs> there's. <laughs> Um, So the nitrogen in the environment is in two forms um, in uh, what we call N14 and N15. So they have slightly different masses. So N15 weighs slightly more than N14. Okay. Um, And there's only a tiny bit amount of N15. There's like 99% of the nitrogen in our environment is N14, and there's this tiny percent of N15. So because of that, um, the like different physical and biological processes will treat N15 and N14 differently, and we can quantify that. And so we found that different sources actually have different signatures associated with them. And so you can almost think of these like isotopes as like different sizes or shapes or colors. So they travel around in the environment slightly in different ways, but we can track that and quantify it. And so we were able to also look at the isotopic composition of the ammonium in the rainwater um, and diagnose, you know, when it was from like particularly from the marine environment, um, you know, or um, from the agricultural environment. Um, or from the urban environment. Um, and combining that with the transport, right, we were able to better diagnose kind of which sources would be most important. Um, and in the case of rainwater, we have to consider the transport piece, you know, importantly, because, you know, when you think sure. about where the clouds are above our heads, when it rains, it's washing out everything in the cloud and everything below it. So it is contained, it does contain pollution that's been transported um, along with those air masses. Um, you know, there's other things we can do, like when we look at just particulate matter, Oftentimes, that's a combination of stuff that's been transported as well as local sources because, um, you know, and, and so if you're collecting, like if you're sucking air, like a lot of times with the methods we use, we'll like suck air through a filter and yeah. filter out the actual particles that are in the air. And then we can study the chemical composition of those. But those particles, especially close to the ground, you know, close to where we're breathing, um, are often, you know, associated with local sources compared to what's, you know, from the cloud all the way to the ground that's going to be associated with both transport and local pollution. Right, right. So um, we're going to have to take a quick uh, break, which uh, and I, for your purposes, I mean really quick, uh, for a sponsor drop. And we'll be right back uh, with Dr. Uh, Professor Meredith Hastings and Ph.D. candidate Emily Joyce to talk more about um 
the movement of these uh, polluting gases through our atmosphere and into our water supply. So stay tuned. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. You may have noticed that we have a whole new look. We also launched a new website that's going to make your listening easier and more enjoyable than ever before. HRN is the original food podcast network. And as we enter a new chapter in our 12-year history, I want to ask you to invest in HRN for the long haul. If you rely on this show to fuel your food media diet, become a monthly sustaining member today. Our members keep the voice of America's food movement alive and kicking. Your donations support this podcast along with 40 other shows on Heritage Radio Network. Your contribution helps give HRN the security we need to stay on the airwaves throughout the pandemic, and your continued support is allowing us to reopen our studio. Plus, we like to give our regular members special treatment. So sign up to become a monthly donor and get access to our secret menu. We've gathered together exclusive discounts and offers from some of your favorite food and beverage brands. So you get to enjoy insider pricing on goods that will ship right to your door. Join our community of monthly donors and special deals will come your way throughout the summer. So can you make a gift of 5 or $10 a month? It'll show me and our whole team at HRN how much this podcast and food radio in general means to you. Become a monthly sustaining member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Okay, so we're back. Um, So you were just saying that it is actually possible to differentiate between the ammonium that is produced as a result of, say, fertilizer applications, as opposed to the ammonium that emanates from animal waste, uh, for example, in concentrated animal feeding operations. But if you, but you were also saying that some of these gases are coming from very long distances, um, and you were referring to particulate matter, and which is another thing that I know travels on the wind, um, and that is not in any way poetic when you think about what it actually is. <laughs> right. um, so can you talk a little bit about sort of um, the distances and also what is in, you know, what is particulate matter? Um, why should people be even thinking about this? I mean, this is this, you know, like, does this matter for, you know, the average layman or is it, you know, I mean, is it something we should all be aware of, more aware of, or, or is it something that really is kind of, just the purview of, of science, of scientists like yourselves? I think we should all care a lot about it. Um, <laughs> okay. so, so it really Thank affects you. our air quality. Um, particulate matter, um, you can actually like suck into your lungs directly. Um, yes. And so, so the EPA monitors um, particulate matter. So um, we also call particulate matter aerosols. So aerosols are okay. uh, literally any, um, they're, they're suspended um, particles, um, droplets, um, you know, in the air. Um, so when you have a hazy day, um, you know, for those of you in the Northeast or on the West Coast, um, last week we had some hazy days um, associated with the fires that were happening in 
um, in the West, but sure. because of the way that the air was traveling, we actually received some of that air here with particulate matter. And so when you get those hazy days or smoggy days um, in the summertime, especially, um, you know, wildfire smoke is a source, uh, desert dust is a smoke, sea salt is a, is a you know, ash, soot, uh, wood burning, all of those are, are sources of particulate matter. Um, and, and- can I stop you for a second? Yeah, what, is yeah. it is that more so in the summer? And if so, why? So particularly matters around all year. And actually, I would say um, our concentrations are probably higher in the winter than in the summertime. Oh, right. Uh, whereas okay. when we think about um, ozone, which is part of smog, um, ozone is produced much more readily in the summer than in the winter. So because of the heat. Yeah. So yeah. So temperature is a, you know, it has a direct effect on that. Sunlight does too, right? We have more sunlight okay. in the summer as well. So yep. Um, so the particulate matter depends on your sources, like which season it would be, you know, important. But, um, but you know, here we do a lot more burning, um, like of wood, for example, um, yep. and coal and things like that um, in the wintertime. And so that tends to increase our, our particulate matter concentrations in the winter relative to summer. Um, go ahead. I, I was going to say that, uh, you know, I'm thinking about like um, when, for example, London, which was famous for its fog, Mm -hmm. Um, back in the 19th century, in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, or as the Industrial Revolution really ramped up. um, And that was entirely due to the coal that was being burned in every single home. Ah, but see, it was it was the coal and the weather. (laughs) Coal and the weather, right. So if you've ever, if anybody has seen the... um, What was the the Netflix show? Um, There was a great... Oh, The Midwife? uh, No, 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 the... um, uh, oh my God, it's on the tip of my tongue. The Queen. Um, oh yes, um, sure. Queen's Gambit. No, the one. No, so, the, yeah. the Crown. The Crown. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, the Crown had this awesome like dramatization of that time period, right? Because it part of the show takes place in that time period um, yeah. in London when they have these really severe acidic fogs, and so so what was happening there? And, and the the meteorologists did warn them, right, that they were going to have these very stagnant air. Um, very low, what we call boundary layer. So like basically, you know, it's like the air settles down into uh, towards the ground and it doesn't move. And mm-hmm. so they had these really heavy fogs near the surface that were sort of stuck there and they were burning coal, you know, in the city. And so one yeah. of the big things that transitioned after that time period was that they moved a lot of the coal burning outside the city. <laughs> so huh. so that we would, and then they also increased the stack um, heights. So if you increase the stack height, then the winds above our heads are blowing much faster than they are near the ground. And so you're blowing away a lot of that material. So that's actually why, like, you know, um, sometimes people refer to the Northeast um, as, and like Rhode Island in particular often will use the phrase that like we're the end of the tailpipe. Um, yeah. And that's because a lot of emissions from coal and agriculture are happening in the Midwest, but those are being transported towards, um, you know, towards us. Um in you know on the in the northeast and so you know that is an issue for our air quality right that we are bringing in a lot of pollution from outside of our city uh, but it is affecting our air quality our air quality and our water quality and as water well quality. as yeah. you, as you have determined so i've read that particulate matter can travel literally thousands of miles across oceans and uh you know deposit uh those compounds on other continents. So let me ask you this. Why does some stuff get rained out closer to home and some of it's travel those long, long distances? Like, you know, what, 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 some stuff is heavier than other stuff or it depends on weather events. Um, That part was kind of murky to me. Yeah, that's a that's a good point that you made. So some parts of it, it does matter with the mass because like particles are heavier so they can settle out faster. 
right. and gases in the air. Um, so gases will be blown further because of their mm. mass. But also um, the species that we looked at in this program have, or, or in, this pro- <laughs> in this project, um, have uh, short lifetimes. So lifetimes uh-huh. are really important and, um, and their solubility. So their solubility is what makes their lifetime. So you can think about like ammonium, it can be a lifetime as short as a half hour. And so it's not going to get very far then for a gas. Um, the particle might go farther. So, so everything has its own lifetime. Right. And the species that we focused on have short lifetimes. There's other species that will make it across the ocean every day because they have longer lifetimes. Uh, what, what would be an example of something like that? Um, I mean, we see particulate matter in the United States from um, China. Um, and yeah. so there's a, a lot of techniques you can use to look at the chemical composition of the particles and actually know where they originated from. So and, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, well, what, like, what are they? What are those compounds that you're seeing from China, for example? Is it soil particles? Is it yeah. waste from uh, feeding operations? I mean, you can see I have a bit of a hobby horse here with the, <laughs> right. so it's a, with the CAFOs, but like that really is a thing. Like when I was researching the book I wrote about the meat industry, mm-hmm. like that just flipped me out to realize that these particles that could often include antibiotic resistant bacteria were traveling literally thousands of miles and depositing on, you know, some poor, unfortunate continent like or country, say in Africa, where you know they don't have KFOs, you know, like right, right, like, and they're not overusing antibiotics, and it seems kind of unfair to me, you know, like stuff like that. So, you know, or getting into the water table, or being taken up by plants, you know, all of that stuff scared the bejesus out of me. So that's that's why I'm I'm sort of drilling down on this stuff. Yeah, uh, I mean because- the whole the whole atmosphere um, exchanges at about a year time scale, like the entire atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So I often, um, I teach a weather and climate course at, at Brown university and I often will show the students pictures of satellite observations of particulate matter concentration in the atmosphere after the Mount Pinatubo explosion. So Mount Pinatubo is in, um, in the Philippines, um, yeah. in the Pacific ocean. And like, you could see an effect through the entire, tropics uh, so like between you know 20 north and 20 south of the entire world within two months um, wow. because that material just moves very very quickly around the tropics and then you can see it through the entire world within four months um and so um so depending on so if the lifetime of your material that you're looking at if the lifetime is longer than you know a year then it's going to be well mixed in the atmosphere like it can it can reach anywhere um so mm-hmm. we see you know we and and so we see deposits of things like black carbon in Greenland and Antarctica, right? There's no industry in Greenland. (laughs) um, So, you know, those materials are coming from, you know, the Europe and and the United States and um, to to Greenland, um, to Antarctica, right? It's the Southern hemisphere. Um, But, um, but yeah, so, um, so these, so certainly like bacteria can be transported on the surface of particles, um, you know, and all, yeah, all kinds of material. So in, in your response in terms of what we see from China, I mean, we do see a lot of soil material and crustal material. And we, we see that from Africa too. Like um, if the wind, like particularly during the summer, right, with these, uh, with the hurricane season, um, uh-huh. you get a lot of winds off of the coast of Africa into the North Atlantic Ocean. Um, and actually dust is an important source of like nutrients to the ocean as well. And always has been, right, even before there were, you know, uh-huh. our, our imprint on top of the dust, Right. And of course, now we have these epic drought periods 
Yes. Which is, you know, which are having such an impact on uh, African agriculture that, it, you know, it will soon be very hard for them to grow anything, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's let's move on for a second, though. So so let's talk a little bit about regulations, um, because to my knowledge, there are few, if any, regulations on agricultural emissions. And I know you guys answered this the other day, but I'm still I still feel like this is an important question. Is there a method with which one can accurately identify and measure those emissions in order for legislators to form some kind of a regulatory framework? In other words, would it be possible for, say, the government to, because like, right, okay, let me backtrack for a second. Right now, everybody's talking about cap and trade and carbon credits and all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. And yet, first of all, nobody really understands what the threshold should be. And I'm wondering if scientists have even figured out how to accurately measure those emissions, no matter where they're from, in order to formulate a threshold to which they can then hold an industry accountable for. If that Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I would say, I mean, one thing to recognize, right, is that um, the scientists don't set the standards, right? The regulatory process does. Fair and enough. So, yeah. um, and so that, you know, that has its own, you know, issues attached to it. Um, You know, one issue being that when you look at the criteria pollutants that the EPA monitors now, um, the, you know, you'll, if you read in any textbook, like there's no safe level of ozone, but, but, but regulators and industry um, and, you know, citizen groups have come together to decide that like, here's a level that we're going to say, you know, this is the level at which we should, um, not exceed. And, you know, and if we exceed this level, then we have to do something about our air quality or you're going to pay fines and, you know, you have to clean up the air. So, so there's an agreement upon which um, those levels are, are reached, which is not always based purely on the science. I just want to say that, that, you know, there's, it's a complicated right. process. Now, um, ammonia, which is agriculture is by far the biggest source of on the planet, um, is not regulated in the United States at all. So, but it is regulated in other countries. Um, somewhat, yes. Um, uh-huh. and so, um, it is not, it's not yet regulated at all in Europe either. Um, and so I think that, you know, like this is becoming the new nitrogen we need to worry about. <laughs> it okay. used to be nitrate, um, because it was nitrate is nitric acid and that's part of our acid rain. And before that it was sulfate because sulfate is sulfuric acid. And that was like in the eighties, our major acid rain problem was right. sulfate. We cleaned up the sulfate. You know, now we've cleaned up the NOx. Um, we've gotten the emissions, you know, down much lower, but we haven't done anything about ammonia yet. So there is success stories there. And there's a, you know, a whole framework in place that if we started regulating ammonia, there would be ways to, you know, to set up, you know, monitoring and and be able to, um, to evaluate those levels. Um, but that hasn't been done yet. Um, and, you know, I do, I do understand and totally um, agree with, you know, your impression that there's a lot of resistance on the part of industrial agriculture um, to really modify um, what they're doing. Um, however, I think that, you know, we're at, we are, you know, at these different junctures where we have to better understand, you know, how to reduce that pollution and the implications for our air quality. Um, and that's both from the standpoint of, you know, if you're not using cover crops, right, then the dust of the, and there's drought, then sure. these huge farmlands are also serving as a component of dust. Um, if yep. you, you know, are, applying way too much fertilizer, then a lot of it is being run off into our waterways and a lot of it's being released into the air and then affecting, you know, places much further downwind than, than locally. So, 
Um, so there is a need to, to be thinking um, and strategizing uh, more um, on that front. And I think a lot of emphasis has been put on, in the recent past, has been put on greenhouse gases and like farms being a source of greenhouse gases. But, mm-hmm. you know, these the air quality, I think, might be a more salient issue for people and one that they can kind of wrap their heads around a little bit more readily because it is, you know, it affects your everyday breathing. Um, right. And, you know, the rates of asthma are going up everywhere and, and particularly in, in regions that are also downwind of agriculture, not just in cities. Um, and that's because right. of this, you know, phenomena of, of the way that these chemical, these gases are being emitted and then forming these particles that, you know, can then um, be taken And these, in. and for example, the rates of asthma increasing, you feel fairly confident that you could ascribe that to these higher uh, levels of ammonium, for example, in the atmosphere? Not just ammonia, no, but... Um, and that's like that's one of the things that you know we hope that these isotopic tools can help contribute to is really being sure. able to distinguish what are the sources, and therefore you know where should we be focusing our energy on in terms of regulation and monitoring, um, and so um, yeah, so I don't think that that link has been directly made, um, but I do. I mean, it is starting to be made for wildfires, right? We are definitely seeing wildfire material in urban areas that are um, increasing, you know, the rates of asthma, increasing the, the rates of re- oh, respiratory, sure. you know, distress. Yeah, um, yeah, I think yeah, the case for sense. agriculture is a little bit more challenging um, at this point. Um, but I agree that, you know, there, there, there does need to be more um, likely done um, in the near future to, to be thinking about, you know, how to better regulate ammonia emissions. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, you guys, you're in your silo, uh, you're doing your research. Um, you are obviously not alone. I'm sure there is a, a vast global network of scientists, much like yourselves in every nation, doing similar work. Uh, and you probably all get together periodically at symposiums and compare your papers and your findings. Mm-hmm. And and then what happens? Do you Is there a mechanism by which you can, um, tr- you know, transfer this knowledge to legislators uh, or people in, or, you know, like, I guess the EPA or, you know, I'm just like, I'm thinking, for instance, about the current, you know, the pandemic that will, that won't quit. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we have these morons, uh, like DeSantis <laughs> and Abbott and, you know, the rest of these fools, um, who have decided that they somehow know better than the CDC. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, this disease is, is, scouring through the population. You know, like, I don't understand how, how these men can justify, or and women, I should say, um, justify their positions as legislators. And I, I, I just can only assume that they are, are grossly uneducated and somehow have decided that they don't need to be informed. And so that's what makes me fear that the kind of great work that you and your cohort are doing will kind of never see the light of day from the point of view of public health standpoint or an environmental standpoint, just because we got a bunch of yahoos running the show who are more interested in profit over people. And that, you know, that's just been the capital capitalist mantra for low these many 40, 50 years now. But the whole thing is, you know, profit over people and be damned to the consequences. So I, I fear, you know, like I, I'm just wondering how you feel, you know, as scientists, like you put all this energy and effort and money and, you know, education into this work. And then where does it go for you? Like where what, what happens? 
Um, well, the way that you describe our process is 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 pretty right on, right? Like we do a lot of this work over the course of years, and and you know when a paper like Emily's gets published, I mean it's been through the peer review process, so the paper yeah. goes to the journal, the editor reviews it, the you know then the editor sends it out to experts in the area, they review it, they return comments, we have to respond to those comments, and you know ultimately if everyone is satisfied and the work is solid, then it gets published. And so by the time right. it's actually published, right, it's already been through, like it's already been vetted a fair amount. Um, that is for journals that, you know, participate in the review process, right? So sure. um, it doesn't go just to publication. So, um, so yeah, by the time that, you know, that kind of information is making its way into a regulatory framework or making its way onto, you know, the into the popular press's hands, you know, it's been, it's been readily reviewed. And so I think that the challenge now in our society is to really try to get everyone to take a step back and take a deep breath and think about what do you want, you know, the, what do you want your quality of life to look like? And, you know, the, the, the reduction of pollution in the United States is, is huge, a huge success story overall, but we still have work to do, right? We still have plenty of unhealthy areas oh, yeah. and there's a lot of disparity in where those unhealthy areas occur. And, um, and we need, you know, we need to do a lot of work on, on this and we need to participate in a evidence-based system and not a belief yeah. system. So a lot of the politicians you're talking about, you know, in a lot of the news media now, it's all about, you know, politicizing our understanding of, you know, of the science and, and choosing a belief system rather than, than asking, well, what evidence do you have that suggests mm -hmm. I should follow a different path? Um, and so if you can show me evidence that, you know, going unvaccinated and unmasked is neither a detriment to you nor anyone in your life that you've come into contact with, then I will happily concede that maybe masks aren't a problem. But instead, we have overwhelming evidence to the contrary, right? Overwhelming evidence yes. that, that being vaccinated, that wearing a mask um, is helpful, that, you know, the community spread is way less under those circumstances. And so, um, so you know, I think, again, people are kind of listening to a political ideology. We saw the same thing happen with, you know, climate change in this country as well. And it's not true in every country. Um, and so, you know, in our country, um, you know, especially under this, the current administration, the way that the EPA functions is to bring together scientists who review the uh, literature and to see, you know, what are the latest measurements that are out there? What is the data telling us? What is the long-term data telling us? Right. Um, you know, which data has been vetted and, and really is accurate and repeatable and which data has not been repeated so that they can make the best decisions possible based on the information we have at hand. And that's a requirement of the Clean Air Act is that they have to, and the Clean Water Act, like they have, they come under review um, every, I want to, I forget exactly the timeline, maybe like six years or eight years or something like that. So it goes under review um, and then they bring in, you know, EPA scientists as well as, um, you know, academic scientists as well as industrial scientists to come in and review um, the criteria pollutants and see, you know, what what is our latest information? Is there any need to change, um, you know, the levels at which we are monitoring um, and the, the levels at which we say, you know, this is safe, right? Or this is, you know, mm -hmm. okay air quality um, and or okay water quality. So, so those are periodically reviewed and and um, and it's an important process and it's an important process to have scientists involved in. Right. It's not a political yeah. process. It is not a process by which it should be, um, you know, word of mouth. Right. It really has right. to be it's something. Not, that, it's not for me so. to say, oh, well, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. gosh, I, I see it's a hazy day. I think we need to, like, start monitoring some air quality. Right. Here, you know what I mean? <laughs> but as um, you guys pointed out at the top of the show, 
you know, Emily made this point, which was that the nitrates had been reduced over the course of 30 years, but the level at which ammonium um, had been, the, or, or I should say the safe levels at which ammonium had been set had not been reviewed in some 30 years. And that, you, and the purpose of your paper, as I understood it, was to take a second look at what actually is a safe or, you know, appropriate level of ammonium in the atmosphere uh, to kind of combat some of these water quality issues that you were looking at. Isn't that fair to say? Yes, that is fair to say. So they, so in other words, I guess my point there, and then, and then we have to wrap this up, but um, my point is, is that, is that the, the more frequent, given the speed at which, you know, industry changes and the speed at which the climate is changing at this point, uh, it seems to me that we, we need to be reviewing these standards like, you know, maybe on a yearly or bi-yearly basis. Is that, would that ever be possible or is there just never going to be enough research money out there to do that? Yeah, I think it's unlikely that we would do it on an every year process. I mean, but but I think the consideration of new pollutants, right, is something that we probably, I mean, because, you know, the, the stuff we're talking about today, you know, are things that affect air quality and um, and water quality directly, but they're also not things that we consider like, you know, air toxics that are cancer causing right. um, or have instantaneous detrimental, you know, impact on your body. Um, right. And so, you know, there's a whole host of things, right, that that need to be to me looked at regularly and and how pollution is being transported and you know what pollution is coming where so that we can better understand how to regulate it and you know we're spending a lot of money you know regulating something locally you know but it's all coming from somewhere else and you know maybe we should be investing that money you know to try to help you know upwind you know change their right. you know their emissions or um you know or yeah or investing in farms in a way that you know, I mean, I think the pro side of the farming system is that it's highly managed. And so if we can figure out ways that we can get similar crop yields, but really markedly improve pollution rates, right, who isn't going to want to do that? Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, but the trick is, right, is figuring out and working together with like at the level of industrial agriculture, of, you know, how can we really improve things? You know, how can we take manure, turn it into fertilizer that's still useful um, but is you know decreases the amount of manure that you have to just pile up on your on your you know farm where it's just you know washing off into waterways and, and right or emitting methane and all the rest of it yes absolutely well ladies I'm gonna I'm gonna drop it here um, I can't thank you enough for this I mean I I really have learned so much from both of you on both of our our forays into the airwaves here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope you'll stay in touch uh, and let me know if you're, you know, if there's something else that is of, that you think would be of interest to me. I'm always like, you know, Thursday and Monday roll around every week, just in case you didn't know that. <laughs> I'm always looking for guests. So, and I love having smart, uh, you know, intelligent, well-informed, educated people on the show, you know. Just saying, because then it makes me look good, because, of course, I'm none of those things. Well, smart enough, but certainly not well-educated. So. <laughs> it's really all about me, ladies. I don't know. You know. <laughs> Sorry. Well, thanks, but. thanks so much for your interest, and we appreciate oh, it. Oh, yeah, and- absolutely. And I, you know, thank you, and, and good luck with all the rest of the work. And, uh, yeah, let's stay in touch. Thank really you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, thank you to my wonderful engineer, Amanda, and, of course, to our sponsors. We'll see you next week. Um, have a good one. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.